Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. Great to see you, Awakening Church. This is the last Sunday service of the year. We won't see you on Sunday until the new year. Man, and we're closing out this morning a brand new series called, or, or it's not brand new anymore, I guess it's week three, a series called In Pursuit of Peace this morning, talking about relational peace. But before we dive into that, I uh, just want to give you a quick update on the generous campaign, and we're asking uh, 100% of our church, and even if you're not a part of our church, you can give to this, because 100% of what is given goes outside our doors. It goes actually to Haiti to build wells and to help in education. And so, so far, we've raised as a church 25 grand just under that, which is great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, but I, well, one, that's a half-hearted clap, so <laughs> either, either we're excited about it or we're not. Um, but I do believe uh, that that doesn't represent 100% of our church. And so uh, I would invite, I would call, I would conjole uh, you to be a part, join with us in the story, and uh, you can still give, you can do that online. In fact, Christmas Eve, our only offering we take is for the generous campaign. All right, let me pray, and we'll dive in. Jesus, thanks so much for this morning. Thanks for the time. Father, I ask that you would speak and you would move, that you would meet us this morning, that, that we would have a life-changing encounter with the God Most High, and that we would experience your peace and presence in our life this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I can think of no more important subject to talk about on December 20th than relational peace. Uh, there's something about the holiday season that seems to amplify uh, the struggle for peace relationally because we find ourselves around people sometimes just once a year that we can't stand and we look forward to not seeing them for the entire rest of the year. Uh, my buddy who's a marriage and family therapist, he posted this. I think we have it uh, up here, this picture. Do we have it, Josh, or no? Yes, yes. okay, so slide, <laughs> slide. It's a picture. It's going to be good. <laughs> but but it's, it simply said this, uh, and, and I, I thought it was so funny. I'll be home for Christmas and in therapy by New Year. <laughs> and, and isn't that true so oftentimes, that there's something about this season that seems to amplify or ramp up uh, the conflict that we have relationally, and that the most wonderful time of the year sometimes isn't so wonderful, is it? But, but it's not just limited to, uh, the, uh, to the Christmas season. We find ourselves in conflict all the time. In fact, I've found that relational peace is rather fragile because you can be at peace with someone and then in a split instance, it's gone. Uh, last year, um, my, my daughter started... Um, softball for the very first time, and I was excited. I, you know, I grew up playing sports. That she's wanting to play sports is exciting, and her coach uh, was, at the beginning of the year, was amazing, and so I started helping out, showing up, uh, serving, doing whatever I could to help with my daughter's uh, softball. Now, it's her first year. Girls had been playing. She wasn't the best on the team, but she certainly wasn't the worst, and, and I like to, I'm pretty objective about my own kids, you know. I, I, I see them accurately. I don't, I'm not one of those parents that sees my kids, you know, like they're the 
I'm just kidding. I think my kids are the best in the whole world, and don't you say otherwise. Um, but, but we're doing this whole year, and throughout the course of the year, she started off in preseason this amazing developmental coach. And then like a light switch, when the year started, when season started, her competitive edge just flipped on, and it was a whole different coach. And, and, and I kind of was like, whoa, who is this person? Because she was a win-at-all-cost coach. I mean, we're talking about 9- and 10-year-old girls, but we're going for the championship of, you know, the softball league. And so my daughter, it's her first year, and I had a lot of grace. She started off just playing outfield, and she was actually one of the better batters on the team, uh, but she was learning the sport, and so she did everything coach said. I mean, everything, and anytime coach said anything, she would respond immediately. Well, as the season goes on, we're getting later, I realize that less and less I actually like this lady because she's not treating my kid fairly. And there's nothing that will disrupt relational peace between us greater than if you don't treat my kid fairly. There's nothing that will disrupt relational peace between us if you somehow treat my kid poorly or rudely or meanly. Any of those other lees, those sort of things, right? There's nothing. And so I, it just began to build, and I sat on the sideline, and, and I realized I'm not just a little upset. I'm really angry at this lady who's treating my little precious princess poorly poorly, you know, as she's playing the outfield. And then there's been multiple times when my like, parents would come and she sat out not just one inning, but two innings. And well, coach's daughter has yet to sit out all season long. She didn't get one chance at infield. Well, it comes to a head. Came close to losing my Christian witness. <laughs> Sitting on the sideline, there's maybe two or three games left. And I couldn't stand it any longer, and I had talked to a few other parents, the wrong way to go about relational peace, by the way. Uh, I had talked to a few other parents to realize that her bulldog mentality had bulldozed them over. They weren't going to say anything, and I figured, you know what, hmm, I'll stand up and be the man. It's my girl. And I, you know, it's the first time around. I didn't want to be that guy, but I was that guy now. And so, so she's in the game. She gets, sits out for an inning, plays outfield. She, coach sends her back out, and then right as she's about ready to end, she's calling Ella back and saying, come on back in. She's going to put someone else in. So politely, in the most kind and gentle voice I have, I said, hey, coach, Ella's already sat once. She didn't respond. So you must have not heard me. It's busy. It's full, you know. And, and so then I, as she's calling Ellen, I said, hey, coach, and, and still yet an incredibly gentle, soothing tone, I'm sure. <laughs> Ella, and, but, but, but a little more volume behind it. Ella hasn't already sat once. And she gave me one of these. I'll never, never forget this. <laughs> Are you kidding <laughs> God, that kind of hurt my shoulder. Um, I'm like, what? I'm sorry. Am I a dog? Are you healing me? What is this? And, and this meant war, you know. I'm like, okay. And so she gives me one of these. Ella sits on, and the inning starts, and she turns around at the fence. I'm sitting at the fence, and she just begins to lay into me. The problem is with the bulldog, when they meet an immovable object, conflict naturally happens, and I am an immovable object when it comes to conflict because I love to win too. 
And so she's like, you, that's inappropriate. I'm the coach. You don't talk to me. And I mean, parents are sitting there. Everyone's going, ooh, boy. People are backing up, you know. And I, in the most soothing, <laughs> kind way possible, I said, hey, coach, you're, you're, you're not attitude. Your actions right here are inappropriate as well. And, and anyways, long story short, we did not have relational peace. Isn't it hard sometimes? Isn't it really hard to experience peace with others? Isn't it hard to experience relational peace with those around us? And especially with those that we we think have treated us so unfairly, so poorly. I mean, afterwards, me and the coach are in the corner, and, and we duked it out. And the next, by the way, the next game, just just kind of complete the story because some of you are like, I want the end. Ella played first base. <laughs> just saying, just saying. <laughs> and I was like, why didn't I do that sooner? Um, but we live in a world where peace is hard to come by, don't we? And we live in a world where it's not just out there and it's not just with others, but it's with the relationships that matter most. Where we long for, yet it often is not a reality of experiencing deep peace and it is often fragile. How do we experience relational peace? This morning we're going to look at a case study, if you will, uh, and how to experience relational peace. It's out of this ancient letter uh, to the church in Ephesus, and if you've got your Bibles, it's in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, and it's this case study for us uh, in how to experience relational peace, and then from that, I simply want to draw uh, four specific applications from the text. I'm sure from my story, you could draw some very poor applications, uh, but we'll draw some very good ones now. Uh, and in this case study, in our case study, there's a classic conflict that you need to understand. In fact, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to Steve's message last week because he unpacked it. There's this classic conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. These were two groups of people that didn't just like dislike each other. They they didn't just like, you know, hey, um, I'm just not a big fan of you. They hated each other. I mean, there was such animosity between them uh, that a Jewish person uh, literally would yell insults at another Gentile, calling them dogs, and likewise backward to the same. In the Jewish synagogue, think about this. This is how bad it is. Uh, in the Jewish synagogue, there were certain levels or certain walls that they built up and erected for those who could be closest to God. And on the outer ring was what was known as the court of the Gentiles, saying, this is as far as you, quote, dogs can come and no further. And then there was a sign, uh, and there's this dividing wall that went actually into the court of women. There's a whole other layer there. We can talk another day. And then the inner court, and that was only where the Jewish man was allowed to go. Uh, But this outer court that the Gentiles were not allowed to go into, you know what the sign said? There's this inscription on the wall. If a Gentile comes through this doorway, they will be killed. That's how big a deal. In fact, I mean, think about this. If a Jewish boy or a Jewish girl married a Gentile, the family wouldn't throw a party. They would have a funeral. 
That's how deep the hatred went. And this is a case study, this classic conflict between the Jew and the Gentile. And here's what Paul says. Therefore, remember that formerly, and would you mind, we're going to get back to that in a second, circle the word remember. You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body, not by hands. Remember, circle that word again, that at that time, and then last week Steve unpacked this, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time unpacking this. He's, he noted five things that, that were taking place. Remember that first, you're separated from Christ. Second, excluded from citizenship in, in Israel. Third, foreigners of the covenant of the promise. Fourth, without hope. And fifth, without God in this world. All he's doing is laying the ground that there was intense hostility, hatred, animosity. Now, before we move on, how about for you? Maybe there's someone in your life, maybe it's a boss, maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's in your own household, where there's, there's not just an annoyance, but there's animosity, there's hostility, there's hatred. And isn't it true that relational peace can be so fragile that in one moment you seem good and then they just do that thing that always annoys you? They just do that, say that thing that, that always lights your fire and then it's lit, isn't it? Well, here's what the Apostle Paul says. Okay, in the midst of this classic conflict, God has a supernatural solution for us. A supernatural solution is, is peace. Now, there's a massive difference between peace and truce. See, we often go for a truce, and truce can often be a noose for peace because truce is simply a way of behaving that keeps the peace but doesn't actually make or create peace peace. We, we go for truces. Maybe it's in your home. We go for truces. Uh, maybe it's at the workplace. And a truce is a way of behaving uh, that, that just somehow tries to, quote, keep the peace. So you work around people. You ever done that in the workplace? You avoid going down that hallway because you don't want to see her or see him. It, you avoid certain conversations. That is not peace, by the way, and that is not what God is offering. He says there's a supernatural solution, and that is peace. Notice what the Apostle Paul continues to say. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away, that is, the Gentiles, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. Here's why. For he himself is our peace. Jesus himself is the embodiment and the presence of peace, shalom, wholeness, harmony, who has made the two groups one and destroyed. I mean, think about this. This is, this is revolutionary when you think about the classic conflict. This is revolutionary writing in that day that was unheard of. I, I can't um, express to you enough how, how countercultural this is and how ahead of its time and things that we take for granted that are part of our core DNA that come and rooted from the Judeo-Christian ethic here. Two groups made one has destroyed the barrier, 
the dividing wall of hostility. That word destroyed is to make ineffective or to nullify. Now that word barrier uh, or the dividing wall is the specific word uh, in the New Testament used for that wall at the temple. It is that specific wall that's saying he's destroyed the wall that kept the Gentiles out. Uh, by setting aside in his flesh the law with his command and regulations. This is the thing that created hostility. It was the superiority of the Jews of thinking they were better than the Gentiles. It, it was presented to help make them a nation that would be a lie to all nations, but subtly what happens over time, and this is what happens relationally, and the reason we lack relational peace is we begin to think that the way we see life, understand life, is better than them and be, become superior. And he says, Jesus has taken care of that. Here's why. His purpose was to create into him, himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God. How? Through the cross. The cross is the means by which God has accomplished his purpose and brought peace to your life and your world, peace between you and God, and peace with others. It's so powerful by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus came. He preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who are near, the Jews. For through him we both have access. Now that word access is the word used in the Greek in the ancient days of an official whose job was to connect visitors to the king. Isn't that a great picture? that you have peace, and because of what happened, there isn't now a standard or a barrier between where we were born, what our, the color of our skin looks like, how influential or lack of influential. It's all based on the cross of Jesus Christ, and as a result, every single person on the planet has access to God. That's peace, and it changes the way you begin to understand and look at others, yourself, and the world around you. Now, as a result, you have this classic conflict, supernatural solution, peace. As a result, something began to happen in the early church that was unheard of. And we often take it for granted and just read back into it our modern context. But as a result, there was a powerful testimony in the church. And the testimony was this, unity where there used to be animosity, Unity, where there used to be animosity and hatred and hostility. Two groups that for centuries and centuries warred together. Two groups that, that hated one another. Two groups that couldn't exist in the same place because of the supernatural peace of God, the presence of his power at the cross. A unity took place. Or you had groups that you wouldn't just say, man, it's improbable that they get along. You'd say, it's impossible. There is no possible way. And I think for some, there's some things, when we're talking about relational peace, it feels impossible. There's some personalities where it feels impossible. Notice what Paul continues to say. Consequently, you no longer are foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's peace, People and also members of his house, household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Underline that word, we'll get back to it in a second. The cornerstone was the stone that, that was laid at the very outset, the foundation that the whole rest of the building was set upon. 
It determined the stability of the structure. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple. Now, this isn't just the word for uh, temple when we think building. This word, holy temple, is actually, it, it literally means the inner chamber of worship. That which the Gentiles were excluded from. They have now been brought into, by the work of the cross, into the inner chamber of worship in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A powerful testimony of unity. By the way, unity doesn't mean, this is just kind of extra credit, if you will. Unity doesn't mean uniformity. We, we get that mixed up sometimes. Because we think everybody should look and act the same. Exact, but the most beautiful picture of unity is, is taking our differences and seeing how they complement and make one beautiful tapestry or picture together. See, God has called us to be to oneness, but not sameness. As a result, the testimony was peace instead of hostility. The testimony was unity instead of division. The testimony was uh, the idea of citizen a belonging instead of foreigner. Out of this text, there are four principles that flow in how to experience relational peace. And Jesus forever changes the paradigm. The old paradigm wasn't actually a pursuit of peace, was it? Because if we're honest when we're talking about peace, we're actually pursuing truces and just how do we kind of create the absence of disturbance. Jesus changes the paradigm and says, no, you can experience peace. You can experience wholeness. You can experience harmony. You can have two groups that war at one point become unified. Four principles. First principle uh, in experiencing relational peace is you have to remember that you have to look backwards to move forward. You have to look backwards to, re- to move forwards. Uh, did you notice that uh, I had you circle the word remember twice? Here, here's the interesting thing. We as people are so forgetful. We often see our past with rose-colored lenses, don't we? Uh, here's what we often do. We tend to magnify the faults of others and yet minif- minimize our own faults, don't we? We tend to magnify their misdeeds, their actions, what they did, and yet minimize our own actions. And the Apostle Paul would say, you need to remember your former condition. You want to experience relational peace, remember where you came from. What do you say? Remember when you're lost? Remember when you're alienated from God? Remember when you were hopeless Remember when you were up a river without a paddle? Remember when you were broken and desperate? Remember in the place when you had no hope and yet hope came to you and peace came to you and Jesus came for you? Remember that? You have to, if you want to experience relational peace, the first principle is you have to look backwards and remember where you came from. Remember your former condition because we always tend to magnify the faults of others and minimize our own faults. 
This last uh, week, Jenny and I were having lunch together, and I don't know if your kids, if you, those of you who have kids, schools like this, but um, giving teachers gifts, and I'm all for teachers, and I'm all for gifts, okay, so don't get me wrong there, uh, but it's become kind of crazy, you know, with three kids in school, and some of our kids have aides and teachers, and there's like, I don't know, 10 teachers, and like 10 bucks, it's like 100 bucks, I'm like, my gosh, so I'm stressing out about, well, you got to give all these teachers gifts, and my wife's like amazing. She's getting all these incredible, thoughtful gifts. Uh, but as we were talking about the gifts, um, we began to talk about each of my kids' teachers. You know, there's been certain teachers over the years that when we look back and go, oh man, weren't they great? Oh man, you know, they're just fantastic. Well, there's one teacher that isn't, And so we began to talk about this teacher, and she's fantastic. There's nothing, I mean, she's a great lady. She loves Jesus. She loves her kids. But she tends to be a little bit confrontational. She tends to be a little bit negative. And it used to be, especially with one of my kids, every time we would show up, she would tell me all the things they did wrong. And again, there's no quicker path to destroying relational peace than picking on my kids. Um, And Jenny looks at me, and she said this. She says, you know why, you know, you have such a hard time with her. I said, yeah, because she's kind of mean. She said, no. She says, because you guys are really similar. <laughs> I, I, I think that's a foul, by the way. I don't think you're allowed to say that. That's not nice. Come on. Um, especially from your wife. So, no, no, I, I, I got to be honest. In that moment, I broke relational peace because I got incredibly defensive. I'm like, there's no way. Are you kidding me? She's, and, she, and my wife, she's like, well, um, okay, let me think about this. You're both direct. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. You're both type A. I'm like, well, is there any other type? Because no one else wants to classify themselves, so... <laughs> And you're both confrontational. Huh. There's no way. See, we tend to magnify the faults of others and yet minimize our own faults. By the way, she used another example of who I was similar to, and this one was deeply hard for me. Ella's coach. Oh, yeah. Them are fighting words. See, here's what happens when we magnify the faults of others and yet minimize our own faults and when we fail to look backwards to move forwards. It gives us a sense of superiority, doesn't it? That somehow we're better than. Somehow we, we have it all together and they don't. We feel justified then in our response, don't we? How many times, when you don't look backwards, when you don't remember, yeah, I'm broken. I'm messed up. And you don't start from that place that you feel justified in how you treat the other person. You feel justified in how you respond to the other person. You feel justified. And somehow it makes your behavior acceptable in your own mind. Yeah. And sadly, what it produces is superficial relationships. Because you can never actually talk about the real you because you're always defending you against them. See, to experience relational peace, you have to look backwards to move forward. Then, 
you need to realize that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. I mean, I mean, did you notice what Jesus, he destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He came and preached peace. See, when you embrace and realize that it is level ground, there are no steps to the cross, it is completely level, we all stand at the same place before Christ and before God. When you understand that, it kills the comparison trap. So we begin to compare, don't we? We begin to look at other people and say, you know what, I'm better than because, and you fill in the blank. You know what, I'm better than you because I don't treat my kids that way. I'm better than you because I actually have a better education than you. I'm better than you and you fill in the blank. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level when it comes to race and ethnicity. There's an old song, red and yellow, black and white. They all are precious in his sight. The ground is level when it comes to politics, by the way. Democratic, Republican, level ground at the foot of the cross. The ground is level when it comes to your education and whether you didn't graduate high school or whether you have a PhD from Harvard. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level whether your social or economic standing, whether you happen to be rich or poor, whether you happen to drive and live in the nice place or you live on the other side of the tracks, as they used to say. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The ground is level gender-wise. See, the church is the place where those who have nothing in common can come and share everything in common because of Jesus. This is why when Paul said earlier in this chapter, it's so important that we don't miss it, for it is by grace undeserved, unmerited favor of God. You are saved. What did you do? Nothing. Could you do anything? Nope. And we all have access to the Father the same way. And when we begin to embrace that, you see people radically different. And you stop comparing, you stop positioning, you stop trying to somehow play that game. Remember, you have to look backwards to move forward. Grounds level at the foot of the cross. The third principle, then, as a result, we need to respond by letting down our walls. Respond by letting down your walls. As a people, our natural response is to put up barriers, to build fences. It's our defense mechanism. You do it, I do it, we all do it. We build barriers. The call is to let down your walls. Naturally, what happens is we end in a stalemate with people. I'll let down my wall when you let down your wall. I'll let down, and this happens, by the way, in marriages all the time, right? 
It, it, it's, it's that much harder because you've built a pattern of relating to one another and, and then you begin to treat them and you, you have this wall and you keep it up and you have good reasons for why that wall and why that is up. And, and you're like, you know what? I'm not taking that wall down until you begin to change the way you respond. And the call The call is to let your wall down. See, the problem is you can't change the way other people respond, but you can change the way you respond. You can't choose other people's choices, but you can choose your choice. See, what we do in trying to create relational peace is we try to control the other person and their response, and if they'll do this, and if they'll finally do this, then one day we'll have peace. But until they do, then we'll never have peace. Jesus is going like, by the way, it destroyed, I just want to let you know, destroyed the barrier between you and me, like tore it down. Not sure you heard. Little thing I did on the cross. People celebrate it once a year. It's cool. (laughs) And you're telling me you can't take down your wall? Hmm. See, we go, you know what, he made me when he changes. Or, or she's always responding that way. This is just the way it is. It's not going to change. No, this is just how I am. Instead, would you examine your responses with the word of God and go, okay, what walls do I need to tear down? Because I can't change them but I can choose my choices in what I do. In fact, it's so fascinating. Uh, And and we'll uh, use this a bit as a bridge. This is such a powerful way for experiencing relational peace that that Peter, he's an apostle, he walked with Jesus. He he was one of the men, who the 12, that was his inner circle guys. Later on, as he's writing, he's writing about relationships. He's writing specifically about marriage relationships. And and he's talking about, he he addresses specifically women and, and how to like, respond with really difficult husbands. And you know what his, his point was? Nag more. That will work. Pester them. Tell them how they're not living up to who they could be and should be. Make it clear. Write a note. Maybe they're not connecting the dots. I don't know. You know what he said? He said this. This hit a little too close to home, I see. Husbands, to win a husband over by their purity and their reverence of life. Said, you, you can't change them. That was never in your control, but you can choose your choices and how you choose to respond. And when you choose to respond that consistently because of how Christ chose to respond to you, it it may not be overnight, but it will bring relational peace. Finally, reconciliation. Restoration. You can put in there relational peace. Comes when Christ is the cornerstone of your life. Without Christ as the cornerstone, the best you can get is a truce. 
an agreement to cease fire, an agreement to build fences, and to stay on your side. See, at the heart of peace, and for us to experience relational peace, you have to be absolutely clear who's in charge. Unfortunately, we all want to be in charge. We all want to call the shots. We all want to have the say. And it's two people warring together to be in charge. To experience relational peace, you have to go, okay, you're not in charge, but I'm not either. You know who's in charge? Christ. He's the cornerstone. He's the one whom I am building my life on. He's the one whom this relationship is going to be built around. See, the question with secular psychology and creating relational peace, they always address the mind, which is an important part, and the Bible speaks a lot about the mind. Uh, But the gospel addresses the heart of the issue, literally the heart. Until you have a heart change and you allow Jesus to change your heart, you will not experience relational peace. And for some this morning... It's a cornerstone issue. Cornerstone, that, that, that one element upon which a building is built around and upon. I mean, have you thought about it this way? Let me ask you a series of questions that are all the same question, just taken from a different angle. What is the cornerstone of your life? I mean, what is it? What is your life being built on or around. What is the cornerstone of your relationships? Think about this. Remember I asked you earlier, that, that one person or maybe that one group where it's, not, it's more than just a dislike, maybe you have some animosity. What is the cornerstone of that relationship? Have you thought about that? What is the thing that is holding your life together? What is the thing that is holding your relationships together? What is the foundation of your life? This morning, as we move into the Christmas season, is an invitation afresh, whether you came in feeling far from God and you've never stepped into a relationship, is an invitation to make Jesus the cornerstone of your life. And there's another invitation for those of us who, who actually just kind of go through the motions and, and we've made Jesus, we've asked him to be our savior, but there's a time where really when we talk about our relationships, he is not the cornerstone. When we talk about our life, he's a nice idea, but we're actually asking Jesus to be built around us, Jesus to be built around our dreams, Jesus to be built around our desires and our ways. And the invitation for relational peace is for you and for me to build our lives around Jesus. And it doesn't work any other way. And for some, that's why you're frustrated. For some, that's why you're a frustrated follower of Jesus. Because instead of following Jesus subtly, 
your life actually reveals that you're asking Jesus to follow you. Reconciliation comes when Christ is the cornerstone of your life. As we close, I just want to take a moment and just ask you this question for you. Do you need relational peace this morning? Do you need it with God? Do you need it with yourself? Do you need it with those around you? I mean, for, for some in this room, you need to take a season. You need to not move forward until you look backwards and remember. That is the starting place. Have you been comparison? Comparing, realize that the ground is level? Are there specific walls, just as I was talking, that you realize you need to tear down? You need to place Christ as the cornerstone, foundation upon which you're building your life around. I don't know where you're at. See, that classic problem of hostility persists today. We experience it. The supernatural solution of peace in Jesus is offered today. The question is, will you receive his peace? Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Father, I just feel like for many, there's actually a war going on inside. It's a war of control. Because to experience peace, we have to give up control and let you call the shots. And so for the person who's far from you and who does not know you, This morning, would you cry out? Would you cry out and just say, God, I desperately need you. I long for peace. I know I'm broken. But I believe in Jesus. He is peace. That at the cross, when he was crucified, it brought peace. And he rose again that I might have life. And when you place your trust It's by grace. When you allow him to call the shots, he will bring peace now. A peace that transcends all understanding. It is the peace of Christ. He is our peace. And for some, afresh, you need to talk to God and just go, God, I've been I've been asking you to work around me instead of me working around you. I've been asking you to follow me 
instead of me actually following you. So this Christmas season, December 20th, I'm placing you as the cornerstone of my life. And I know there's going to be things that you're going to ask me to adjust because they need to be in alignment with the building you're building in me, the life you're creating. And so ahead of time, I say in faith, you show me, I'll do it. You show me and I'll do it, God, no matter how hard. We entrust these things to you. In Jesus' name, amen.